brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Soft Rep Radio on time, on target. This show is brought to you by Crate Club, a club for men, by men, of gear handpicked by special operations military veterans. Visit crateclub.us for an exclusive promotion for our listeners of 20% off any gearbox of your choice. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live, so go to crateclub.us, use the coupon code SOFTREP, and get 20% off any gearbox. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SOFTREP for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up now. Before we get into anything, I feel like I have to just disclaimer that we have like the natural New York sound in the background again because it's warm here and this room just gets very stuffy if I don't have the windows open. So you hear ambulances, you hear church bells, all types of things. It's a beautiful day. Yes. It's part of the ambiance. There you go. It is beautiful here in New York City. We have Ken Steiger in studio. Um, before we get into Ken's background, I just wanted to say great um, response to the Michael Ames episode that we did the other day. Uh, there's still those people. I even saw people on Twitter saying to you, there's one guy who was like, I can't believe you've been duped by this guy, Jack. But I feel like those people didn't listen to the podcast yet because everything he says, he really backs up with accounts, with the amount of interviewing that he did. And I, I don't think there's really much you could disprove from that interview. Yeah, I mean, it's okay to question it or, oh, refute, it, or refute it, but um, it's a question of what are you refuting? What's specifically what claims uh, are not true? And I, I didn't write the book. The book is a book called American Cipher, written about uh, Bo Bergdahl. Right. And um, I didn't write the book, so I sure. I can't tell you, you know, a hundred percent. But I, I'd recommend people read it for themselves and look at the end notes and look at the sourcing and make up their minds. Yeah, I, I mean, I even saw on the Soft Rep Radio Facebook page that the first response to the article was from Bo Berg, uh, sorry, not from Bo Berg at all, from Matt Vierkant, who was there, and he just wrote bullshit. And Michael responded to him, and he was like, hey, I would have loved to have interviewed you. What in this interview, you know, was I inaccurate about? And I didn't see a response from that yet, but... I, I feel like for a lot of people, and I'm not speaking on Matt's behalf or anybody else, but it it is somewhat, I think, of an emotional response. It's a very emotional subject for people. Yeah, that especially if you were in that unit and you guys got punished for this guy walking off base, you are going to have some emotion to that. And you are going to be attached to, yeah, this guy's a traitor. I'd be pissed. There's no question. Yeah. So it's, it's completely understandable. But listen back to that episode because I, I thought Michael did a great job of uh, just getting into the facts of what went down. And I, I just didn't hear anything that was refutable. So it's I, I don't buy into that either of us were duped by anybody. Uh, I think, and, and I mean, if so, what was the reason for him writing this book? He's certainly not going to 
get rich quick writing a book that the media no. kind of refuses to have him on because he's shooting down the narrative of both the liberal and conservative establishment. I, I can tell you for sure you don't get rich quick by writing books like that <laughs> uh, and upsetting people. Yeah. Well, with that, in studio with us is a guy with a very unique background, Kenneth Steiger, former FBI special agent. And I was actually thinking and saying to Ken when he walked in, it's really rare we get someone with his background. We've yeah. had John Gillum on years ago who did some uh, work with the FBI. I think that's the only guest we've had on with a background in the FBI. You, on the other end, have been in the FBI for decades. Right. And before we get into your background as a special agent, the way you were referred to us was our friend C.J. Ramon. So I figured we'd get into your <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> uh, background with Chris, who we were both saying is just an all-around great guy and a, a right. major talent. Yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Um, it was kind of funny. I um, I was out in Babylon, and um, I was actually just having dinner with my son. and was standing at the bar. We are having a drink, just finished the night, and in comes this lady and started talking to her. And uh, she goes, oh, my brother's C.J. Ramon from the Ramones. I said, get out of here, you know, I, I, come on, you know, and I just thought it was a bunch of BS sort of, and um, what happened was we started talking, and then we started dating, and then years later we got married, and, you know, we developed a great relationship with Chris. I mean, what a great talent, what a great guy, you know, he was in the Marines, and the, the whole story, how he got into the Ramones is a great creative yeah, story, <laughs> and really very unique, right? And um, I've been there when he's been putting his songs together, and, you know, getting uh, the music over to his bandmates, and how he was recording in a garage band, and to see his creativity, and his knowledge of a lot of subjects and he's just a great guy and we and uh, i miss him he moved out to california out in san francisco but we used to see him all the time and a great father you know took care of his his kids his uh son liam is autistic and to see that kid blossom and the intelligence he has and you know he's making a life for himself out in san francisco you know it's a, it's a great success story you, you got to tell the Andrew Wilkow story, though, that you were telling me. Okay, th this is kind of funny. I, I listen to Andrew Wilkow all the time, you know, it's when I'm in the car and, you know, th those hours. And this one day he's, he's talking and he goes, I really like punk rock, you know, I really enjoy that. And he goes, you know, I saw the, uh, the Ramones at um, Jones Beach. And he goes, I, I'm a big fan. So he said, well, at, the, at the end of the concert, I went up to him and I got them to autograph my, my tickets. And he said, I got C.J. Ramon to autograph it. You know, what a great guy. So I'm sitting there, I said, you know what? This would be this would be funny. So I dial up from my car <laughs> and I call it, and I don't know why it went through. I'm sure there's his lines are always packed and everything else. At the first ring, it goes right through, and the producer answers, "What would you like to tell Andrew?" I said, "Well, tell Andrew I'm married to C.J. Ramon's sister." He goes, "Hold on, right away." It must have been Mike Benz. It, yeah, it was, it was, I, it was it the guy was named Mike. Or it, yeah, it, it may have been sure. me, possibly. It, it, it possibly <laughs> could be. I, I just don't remember. But uh, next thing you know, Andrew gets on the on the radio. I had to turn my radio down. He goes, "So you're married to uh, C.J." Ramon's sister I said yeah I said what a great guy I said what you don't really know is you know that he was in the Marines and he's played for the Ramon with the Ramones for over eight years he tours all over the world but really he's a conservative guy he goes what he goes I can't believe that you know? I said it's true I said he has you know he, he was uh, brought up to respect the flag you know he's a he's a patriot you yeah, know yeah. and he served his time you know served time and he's a great guy and he goes you know what I'd really like to interview him you know can you do me a favor just hold on and we'll get your information and stuff. So what happened was they put me on hold, all of a sudden we lost the call. And then I called back a couple of times and finally got through and the producer said, thank God you called, I thought we were gonna lose you forever. So what happened was I hooked them up with uh, C.J. Ramon, Chris Ward, and um, uh, he, they made a, a date for him to go into uh, Andrew's uh, studio. 
So Chris calls me up and he says, hey, I'm going tonight to see Andrew Wilcox be interviewed. And we talk about Liam and my music and all that stuff. He goes, he's going to have a car pick me up. Come on with me. I said, sure. So I went to his house, and sure enough, there was the limo there. We go in. So we went to the studio. I met Will, uh, Andrew Wilkow, what a great gentleman he is. And uh, I was walking around the studio, and that's, and that's how he hooked that's up. That's awesome. And he's interviewed Chris several times, yeah. you know, about music, conservatism, and, you know, uh, you know, these rock and rollers actually being conservative. And I think he's got a few more guys that came in. You know, a lot of these guys don't want to come forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because they they're afraid of hurting their they're, careers they're in the closet. Such. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, uh, some of them we've had on. I mean, we've, we've had had on Phil Labonte from All That Remains, also a former Marine. Um, and he became a friend of Aaron Lewis which, when he found out Aaron Lewis from Stand was a fan of his. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those, like, the rest is history stories. Because right. I know I, Chris from that gig and then coming over here, he's right. kind of come along to what we do. And he is an all-around great guy. And I did get to meet his son, who uh, I think a lot of people, especially with uh, this stuff in the media out there and the stereotypes, don't really understand the spectrum of people right. who have autism. Because as you said, his son is a brilliant guy and He's extremely knowledgeable about yeah. a lot of subjects. He absolutely is. I mean, he, he would come over our house and he would start talking about... Um, you know, the Greek civilization and then just go through all the statistics. It was phenomenal. And then, you know, he's actually written a few books wow. and has been produced by, um, uh, pro uh, produced by uh, Amazon. And he's, he was working at a, um, uh, a grocery store out east and he was actually sitting there doing autographing his books. So here's a, here's a, a young man that has autism, actually has written books. He's writing more stories now. He's really, he gets on my computer, gets on GarageBand. He, put, he puts together sounds that are just phenomenal. I'm not into rap and stuff, but he was, he was doing that. And just one take, it was phenomenal. The brain that this kid has, he's really very, very so, bright. Like you said, there's different types of autism, and it's incredible to see like these people can do things that I could never do. Oh, you I, know? no way. Yeah, there's no way. Yeah. And um, I, I read an article once about how there's certain types of autism that um, the people who have it really thrive in jobs like computer programming. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they can, I mean, they can just do some incredible things. Really. We yeah. really do. And he's a great young man. And, you know, you can see how he's blossomed through the years. You know, he, he was nonverbal for, for quite a while. He couldn't even speak. And to see the progression and to see what he's grown into, and he's, he's really a, a good young man. And he's, he's, he's making a life for himself out in San Francisco, doing very well. Wow. It's great. It's an amazing story. story. Yeah. Um, so getting into your background, of course, here, uh, I don't know where to begin because you've been, you've been involved in so many things. For example, uh, you've been assigned to top-tier organized crime investigations, the case agent for the Colombo crime family. And then as we were speaking on the phone as I booked this, you were involved in taking down Bernie Madoff. Yes, so, I mean, where to begin? Where Let's, well, let's begin, because I want to hear, like, some old-school G-Man stories from when you first joined the Bureau, and I bet it was very different back then it was than a, it is today. It was a totally different world. You know, we didn't have the technology that they have now, and everything that we did was you had to go way, miles out of the way just to go a few inches forward. <laughs> and that's really exactly how it was all the time, you know? So uh, when I first came in, when the um, organized crime back in the 80s was the number one investigative priority of the U.S government, Department of Justice. So we had a task force with uh, uh, New York City Police Department, local police departments, and the FBI. And we put a full court press on, on the uh, uh, families. And, uh, what Italian happened, crime families. All five families. And what happened was uh, Joe Bonanno wrote a book. Yes. Uh, uh, to his on, your, on your honor, our, our, an honorable man. Yeah, that's, that's it. it. So he started talking about the commission. 
that that is a commission that they right, they ruling right. body. That was like that you was don't do that. You're yeah, not you don't do that. that. So what happened was Rudy Giuliani reads the book. He goes, "Let's go after the commission," and that was the whole gist of what they did. We had each squad. We had five organized crime squads all in New York. We had them up in Westchester, Long Island, and um, in New York. And each squad was in charge of investigating each organized crime family. And I was assigned to the Colombo family. We had um, a great supervisor, Damon Taylor. The man was a genius. Unfortunately, he passed away. But he, he was steps ahead of where we wanted to go and he wanted to go after. And they had all kinds of wiretaps. My first year and a half to almost two years, all I did was sit on wiretaps, phone taps, you know, uh, uh, restaurant bugs and things like that. So um, we... I wasn't the case agent. I was just one of the guys that, you know, did surveillances and, you know, supported the major cases. So um, after a couple of years of the investigations, because these t- cases take a long time, we ended up arresting, um, um, getting warrants, actually, for Carmine Persico, Dominic Monmorano, and Jerry Langella. That's, uh, Jerry Langella was a consigliere. Um, Carmine Persico was the boss of the family, and Dominic Monmorano was the underboss. And we had arrest warrants. They arrested all the commission, all the members of the commission. And these three took off. They were in the wind. We couldn't find them. They were fugitives. So after a few weeks and a month or so went by, they made uh, Carmine Persico a top 10 fugitive. And a very good friend of mine, Ken Brown, had the case to go and arrest him. I can't tell you what he had to write daily reports down to headquarters. This is how things have changed. Daily reports and, and um, send telegraph tel- tel- telegraphs down to headquarters. Wow. What did you do today? What did you do for the week? And they wanted everything accounted for, every minute of his time. And we were out all over the place. We went to every social club you could find. And the, the social Ital- clubs don't Italian want Italian social clubs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and a couple G-men roll up in there. <laughs> they don't like that too much. <laughs> they don't want you in their places. So that's what we did. We shook the trees and everything else. And this is a very unique story. There was a fellow, I could tell his his name because he was in the witness security program and he was testified and everything. He had uh, Carmine Persico just disappear. We couldn't find him. And there were reports he was in South America, you know, out West and all this other kind of stuff. But we had all these, we we had a lot of informants out there. There was a fellow that calls up the office in New York and he says, I know where Carmine Persico is. I want to talk to this special agent. Well, the special agent's not in New York. And he said, okay, we'll try to get him to you. Didn't work. He called back again. I think he called like four or five times. Finally, he found out that the agent that he wanted to talk to was an SAC out in Los Angeles division. He had gone up the ranks. This fellow was an informant way back. Back in the day. Back in the day. And he was the brother-in-law of Carmine Persico. Okay? Now, the funny story, well, the unique story of it is he was married to his uh, Carmine Persico's sister, and he had a girlfriend from England, and he was stealing money from Carmine Persico. They was, Carmine was going to use to, to escape. It was stuck in a roof in the ceiling of the uh, attic, and he was stealing cash and spending it. And he goes, and Carmine was planning to flee. So he, he knew it was only a matter of time before he was going to see that money's missing, and he was going to be killed. So he was desperately trying to get the agent. The agent comes from uh, California, comes to New York. We pick him up, and I go and I, I pick up this witness and we bring him to the office and he tells me he goes Carmine's up in my attic and he's been there for the last month and a half and uh, he's going to flee and he goes you know I'll let you know what's going on and you know what's happening so they built up the rapport again and sure enough what happened within about three weeks 
Carmine Persico, Dominic Monmorano, and Jerry Langello had a meeting that they were going to plan their escape out of the country. And they were going to meet at the sources, ex-sources house. So we knew the time they were going to be there and uh, the date and everything else. So we planned strategically where to go and everything else and how to set up. So you knew where he was, but you waited for this meeting so you Correct. could get all three. So we get all three of them. So they came, they all came in, went in the house, we surrounded the house, and then next thing you know, wow. Carmine tried to escape out the back, and my supervisor said, no, no, go out the front, and they, they arrested him. Carmine Persico was a very, very bright man. He only had a high school education, and um, he, he knew the street laws, and he knew regular laws, and he actually defended himself in trial. He didn't... Really? Yes, he did, he, and he did a... Pretty good job for a guy that's never, you know, no formal, no education, formal education, yeah. no law degree or anything. And the judge told him, he says, you know, what a waste you are because you, you did such a great job. If you would have applied yourself to a regular society, you would have done fine. But one of the unique things about Carmine and, and organized crime, I remember um, when I, was, I used to teach at St. John's University, organized crime there. And one of the quotes from uh, Carmine Persico was there was a bookmaker that had a certain corner over in Brooklyn. He goes, why do I have to pay you money? Every, every week. He goes, Carmine Persico says, look, we're like the government. I'm protection for you, and I give you the right to work here. So as a result, you gotta pay me. So you have to pay me every week, and that's the way it's done. And for restaurants to operate, you gotta pay me to make sure nobody breaks up the place. Nobody, you know, and actually, they're the ones breaking up the place, and they threaten them and things like that. You know, and they, they, that's how they, they extort a lot of money. I live in a, uh Italian-American neighborhood <laughs> in Brooklyn, and um, it's not the same as it was back in the 70s right. and 80s, but those people, they're at, they're at, they did their time, they're back, and, you know, trying to go legit and live normal lives, and, uh, but you still hear the old stories, you sure. know, the guy who got shot over a game of cards. Oh, yeah. Um, all that, like, Don, Donnie Brasco kind of stuff was going on. And, um, and yeah, one of the, there's a, one guy, uh, in the neighborhood who's an Italian immigrant runs a sandwich shop and he was getting shaken down by the Italian mob. Oh yeah. Which, like how messed up is that? You immigrate from Italy, come here, the land, home of the free land of the brave. And now you're getting shaken down right. by organized crime. It's really amazing. You know, and they really don't have a conscience, a lot of these mobsters, you know, and it's whatever money that they can get from you. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a case on, um, Again, that was the first case I was with, and I had other cases in between. I had one of the unique things, you're talking about Brooklyn, over in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, um, uh, Sonny Francis's uh, nephew, uh, Carmine Francis, his nickname was Tootie, T-U-T-T-I-E, and he had a social club on Leonard Street, and it was very unique. I would try to do surveillances. The whole neighborhood during the summer, they sit on the, the stoops, mm -hmm. and you drive down there, and obviously the cars that we had at the time were not <laughs> undercover cars. I'm driving down with a big Chrysler, and they're all looking at me, and I could see them like pointing and things. All I did was just go slow down there so I could get a couple of license plates and just see who's hanging out there so I could document it. But even the neighborhood was watching for them, you know? And... Um, so it's 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 ingrained in the in the in, in the, the neighborhood culture. in the culture, mm -hmm. and they're afraid of them, but they also protect it. It's very little crime other than their crime. Right, right, you right. Know, you don't see outsiders coming in there, you know, uh, mugging people and everything else. That's not going to happen, you know. But uh, one of the unique things when I was working a case with, um, uh, what happened was after, just to backtrack, when Persico went to jail, his son was also in jail, um, little alley boy. Um, Alphonse Persico. And as a result, he had nobody to run the family while 
uh, Carmine was in jail. So he had a fellow named uh, Victor Arena. His, name was, his nickname was Little Vic. He was a little guy, about 5'4", ruthless man. And he goes, you're going to take over until my son comes out. He goes, okay, no problem. Now, what got us into that case was um, they were in, in, um, involved in killing racehorses for the insurance money. <laughs> you can't believe these, these scams. I mean, this is a true story. There was a racehorse named Finns, and what they did was they would put the horse in races, all right, and Vic would be part owner, and he'd have a couple other guys, mobsters and unsuspecting investors, and they, the horse would win a couple of races, but the races were fixed. I mean, there's no doubt They're about building it. up the horse's credentials. Exactly. And then what they did was, once he won a couple of races, they would syndicate him. And there were a lot of multimillionaires that want to be investors, investors and own part owner of, of, of a winning horse. Sure. They're giving hundreds of thousands, if not even millions of dollars. So they have all this investment money in it, right? And it's all going into the mob pocket. Then they go to the insurance company and say, look, we, got, we just syndicated this, this horse for $6 million. We want to insure him for that. Sure, they're paying the premiums out of the money they got from the investors. So what they did was they um, this horse in particular, Finns. Uh, after a while, once they got the insurance, they waited a while. They injected the horse with heartworms, and they did it out east in a, a winning edge farm out in Long Island. And the horse started having problems. They called in the vet, and the vet said, "Too you know, late. Too late. You can't do anything for the horse." So they ended up getting an insurance company, called the insurance company, look, this horse is going, you know, suffering. So they said, okay, they brought their vet in, looked at him, documented it, okay, put him down, and they paid $6 million wow. for that horse. Mm-hmm. And that's all in the mod's pocket. And that's, that was the introduction to um, Victor Arena. And I, would, I knew that he was meeting uh, organized crime figures all, along, all across Long Island. They were in virtually every uh, catering hall. Uh, Manor East out in Long Island. Tommy O'Sara was uh, the behind-the-scenes uh, owner of it. They killed him because he was stealing money from the carting industry and skimming money out of Manor East. And that's uh, one of the charges that was against uh, Victor Arena. And two fellows that actually murdered him, uh, actually, they recorded uh, Victor Arena and said, yeah, we, we killed him. You know, wow. it was on tape. And, uh, I mean, that's how ruthless they are. And you were telling me some interesting things about how technology has developed in terms of, uh, you know, bugging cars of people oh, yeah. and, and recording devices from your time to now. Yeah, well, in, in the old days, if um, um, they used to do recordings, they would put, they would sneak in a car and they would hook up a wire transmitter. Yeah. All right. And they would have to follow the car. You have to be within 100 yards. That's how bad the technology was. And oftentimes these people are very... Adept to find it, yeah. who's around them. They, they look for a common car. And it was really an antiquated way to do it. But, um, you know, it, it worked to, to a degree. And what happened was, and I put a, a bug in um, uh, Victor Arena's driver's car. And his, his nickname was Chubby Ordino. And he had his brand new uh, Buick. And he used to drive um, Victor Arena around. But what happened just prior to doing the car bug I had a place all set. He was he was meeting uh, all these mobsters in a and actually it was a deli uh, near Cedarhurst. It was called the Wilshire Deli, and he had a little room in the back. And I had all our surveillance guys there. I was I had written the affidavit, had the court approval, everything else to put the bug in there. And then he wasn't giving up the power when Alphonse Little Alley Boy came out of jail, and Carmine Persico <laughs> ordered him to be killed from jail. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> so here I am. I'm doing this, all this to get the bug in the darn uh, deli, and it would have been a killer. 
They, it, he was meeting 10, 15 guys a day. And I, I guarantee you they were talking about illegal activities. I had a bunch of sources that gave me the information about it. So then Car um, Carmine Persico has his boys out there try to kill him. Now he's on the <laughs> land. He takes off. So here I am, months and months All worth that work, of work. Down the toilet. That's what I'm saying. You have to go miles to go a few inches. And that's what, that's what organized crime work happens, you know? Is that, that, that kind of legwork, is that ultimately what changed the game? And I don't want to say the downfall of the Italian mafia, but I mean, it's not what it was a few decades no, ago. No, but they were, they're going to come back, though. You, you, you see, think they're going to yeah, come back? Yeah, because the FBI now is looking more into terrorism mm -hmm. and international terrorism, and organized crime is not that much on, on, the, on the scope. And you'll see, you'll see more and more as time goes on in the next five, ten years, you're going to see they're coming back a You lot. think those families just can't give it up? They, they can't give it up. They can't go legit. It's nope. not possible. That's their lives. And what they actually tried to do, especially the Colombo family, they were, they were investing in a lot of catering halls, apartment buildings, and they put it into legitimate business. And they had, you know, they had the gas uh, tax. But I'll get back to your this, this <laughs> statement about the, uh, the bugs. Uh, we actually <clears throat> had surveillances on uh, Victor Arena and his uh, driver. Now, this is the Colombo war going on now. This is now every, all power struggle, struggle. Yeah. Pa big power struggle for the control and the soul of the Colombo family. Victor Arena was not going to give that up. He had his side of the alliance. Carmine Persico had his side. Carmine Persico had all the uh, sociopaths and the psycho killers. Okay, Victor didn't have that many killers on his side, and they were shooting at each other all the time out in the streets in Brooklyn, Queens. They killed a fellow about three miles from uh, the, our office out in Long Island at a hotel. <clears throat> So what happened was we knew that the driver was picking up through our surveillances was picking up um, uh, Victor Arena, and he'd have guys go in the car and they would talk. So we put a bug in the car, but it was the first time we used a certain technology. I don't really want to go too much now because I don't want to reveal it. Yeah. But it was you know used some phone technology things like that, and we actually stole the driver's car and swapped it with an exact duplicate. No shit. Yeah, because the car was right next to his bedroom. <laughs> so they, they wheeled it out, and they put the other car in there, because Casey woke up to look at the car. You know, he didn't want to see something missing, so they replaced it. They took the car into one of our shops, and they, they loaded the thing up with recording devices and transmission <laughs> devices and things like that. And very, very unique. And that was just the start of the cutting edge of the new technology. I mean, now it's phenomenal what they have back I mean, in that, the day. That's how we, we would have done it in Iraq back in the, in, when I was there you know, during the, the war, um, and we were targeting insurgent cells. Right. But it's one of those things. It's one of those um, – it's interesting for me, for you know, a military nerd like me, you know, there were a lot of things that were learned from law enforcement that the military wasn't really good at at the time. Right. Um, and the Brits were actually further ahead of us uh, in the 70s, 80s, even in the 90s, maybe, because they had that experience of going after the IRA. Right. And uh, the U.S. military was just getting into counterterrorism. We didn't really know how to do that yet. Right. It's amazing how our country adapts. And, we have our, to, yeah. our, and our, our soldiers, the military, they do phenomenal work. I mean, they're very bright guys, and they, they figured it out, you know. And as you said, you know, they use that technology, and, it, you know, you save lives, and you end up getting the bad guys. So then you swapped out the bugged car for your decoy, put it yes. back where it belonged. Exactly. And, and never knew a thing. They never knew a thing, and they were in, they were in that car for hours at a time. The problem with the, the, uh, the technology was it was so new, it would overheat. So we'd have about an hour's worth of really great conversation. All of a sudden, boom, it would show out. And we were able to monitor it back at our office. That was the beauty part of it. You didn't have to follow them. 
So it would cut out after about an hour. And then it would take about a half hour to get back up, and they'd continue their conversations, and we recorded. And all those conversations were used against them in a trial. Maybe, maybe this is getting like a little too Hollywood, but did you ever have experiences or any of your, your teammates have these experiences where the mafia started targeting you? And going after you or your family or started trying to run intelligence operations on your office. Well, we, we definitely know that they had lookouts at our, our offices in New York. Not out in Long Island that I'm aware of, but definitely in New York. And we had one agent, a fellow named Dennis Maduro, was a case agent. And the, the word was that they, want, they were so mad at him because he was so effective <laughs> in, in his job, they wanted him out. So they actually transferred him down to headquarters. You know, that's that's the only case that I'm aware of because they know really not to mess with us. It that would have way. been too much because absolutely yeah. because it would have been you want out war on your hands. Yeah, you know, yeah, you don't yeah, want yeah, the yeah. government coming at you full bore. And as I said, even when I'm looking for Carmine Persico, we were at every single social club. We basically, we're in their faces all the time. They can't they can't operate when you're but around you, them like but that. But you guys were never shooting at each other. No, that, no, that no, was no. like the line that was never crossed. Never crossed. Uh, <clears throat> we had one. I arrested six uh, of our uh, arena's um, associates. And they were planning to go kill somebody, and we knew they were in a, in a brownstone in in, uh, in Brooklyn, and we went there at like four o'clock in the morning and knocked on the door, raid FBI, and and when literally when you saw Mario Puzo's film, the the Godfather, these guys were on the mattresses. There was like six mattresses all laid down in the apartment, and that's where they were sleeping, and that's what they they were just waiting to go and and uh, you know for their orders who they're going to kill and get all the information and, and go kill the other side and wow. we arrested all of them you know one interesting thing that we had you know sometimes you're very successful with sources and sometimes you're not you know it's a, it's sometimes a crapshoot i had this one source <clears throat> excuse me we nicknamed joey shoes because he used to sell shoes and stuff <laughs> and he was a he was a loan shark victim and twice you know, he says, look, I got to pay this guy five grand. And I said, okay, I got authorization. We were going to make the payment. And I, and I wired the guy up. Next thing you know, the wire didn't, you know, it, nothing worked. I said, well, that's not too cool, you know. And I said, okay. So I said, I'm going to give you one more chance, all right? Another, another guy you owed money to. So we get $5,000 cash, give it to him. We wire him up. Same thing happens. So that's $10,000 we're yeah, out. Yeah. I said, you know what? You're done. And that was it. So what happened was, two days later, just so happens, he goes, look, I got information that this guy named Paulie Guns Bavaria, uh, Bavacqua, they're going to go and murder a, a Persico guy. They found him. And he's going to go home and pick up a couple of guns, and then he's going to go into Brooklyn somewhere. I don't know where. So we go, we rush. I said, are you sure of this? He goes, absolutely, it happens. We got the Bureau helicopter. We got the surveillance squads. We went, and <clears throat> everybody we could find from my squad, I went to the, the fellow's house and saw him go in. He came out a few minutes later. And he was out in Hop Hog. That's where he lived. And he got on the parkways. He was going like 100 miles an hour. I couldn't believe it. And he went down, uh, went down to um, the, um, the Southern State Parkway, went all the way into Brooklyn. And he pulled in and he went into a, a, a brownstone in Brooklyn. And we waited. And we waited and waited and waited. Other people went into the building. He came out about four or five hours later. We stopped him. Now, one of the biggest things when we stopped the war was a lot of these fellows that were um, mobsters, they had prior records, and they all carried guns. They're not allowed to have a gun. So you catch a felon, convicted felon with a gun, it's a five-year count. So we just take him off the street. So he comes out of the driveway, and he's got a young guy with him, and uh, we stop him. He had a gun with him and a bulletproof vest on, both of them. And we arrested him. And, uh, you know, they ended up 
stopping somebody from being murdered that night. We don't know who they were going to kill because they never coughed it up. Mm. But it was stuff like that. It was like reactive. It was just amazing how we were able to even stay with them. We had the, you know, the plane up there and everything else. It's wild. And how often do these guys end up flipping on each other? Or, or is Omerta like for real or no? That no. you know the the last of the Mohicans is like a Sonny Franzese. He wouldn't come across with anybody. And, and my forte was getting guys to cooperate and developing sources. Mm-hmm. When they were going to violate Sonny Franzese, they wanted me to go and arrest him and pitch him. I said, "Look, this guy is not going to do it. I, he's a true believer." So we went to arrest him. He was sitting with some other mobsters, and I said, "Sonny, you know, going to arrest you. You got to go with us." He goes, can I at least finish my pasta fazool before I go? <laughs> <laughs> so they have a sense of humor, you know, to a bit. I said, no, you can't finish your pasta fazool. It's a true story. So we get, him, we get him out of the restaurant. I didn't even put the cuffs on him there because it's all about respect, too. You don't want to embarrass him in front of people. Right, right. So I got him in the car. I said, I have to put the cuffs on him. And I said, they want me to talk to you. He goes, you're wasting your breath before I even get another sentence out. I said, well, I got to give you a pitch. He goes, okay, you give me a pitch. Gave him the pitch and everything else. And I talked to him for about a couple of hours. You know, I talked to him about his family and everything else. It was no way. Now that's the old style. Old school. Yeah. And you look at Joey Messino, who's the boss of the Bonanno family. He rolled on everybody, you know? So this, that many, many years later, that was about maybe 10 years ago, I think, uh, Joey Messino, uh, he cooperated. He had his walls in his house loaded with uh, cash. And he said, I got like, I don't know, $5 million in the walls. They ripped down the walls. They found all the cash there. Like, and they just it? arrested a couple members of the Bonanno family a few years ago on old murder charges. Oh, yeah. 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 And they're still after the Gambinos. The Columbos aren't. I mean, we really did a good job on the Columbos. But the Gambinos are still running around. The Bonanos are still there. Lucchese's are still there. Genovese. And Genovese. I mean, they're all going out there. And they're just starting to solidify more and get their power base, you know, because they have a lot of other organized crime. You know, you got the Armenians. you got the Russians. You know, they have to vie for that power for those areas, you know. It, wow. It's so cool hearing <laughs> these stories from you because I feel like you watch movies like Casino and you feel like, oh, this is hyperbole this is exaggerated right. for hollywood and what you're saying is the real deal that this is really how it goes down yeah absolutely um it's it's really what they do i mean some of these guys are absolutely geniuses they're funny as heck you know i've, I've interviewed many of them you know and arrested a lot of them and they'll sit there you sit and they'll they're bright as can be and you know next thing you know that's that's their life you know one of the most accurate movies on organized crime was goodfellas that was right down the line. It was just truly amazing how these people could go kill somebody and go have uh, dinner with their mother. <laughs> you, and, uh, you think they pasta. spoke to people like you in order to get an accurate portrayal of that? You know, I don't know if they really did, you know, um, but it was, I, I'm sure they talked to a lot of mobsters, yeah. you know, and they got the story because that one, that movie was just spot on. The best one I've ever seen. It was right on it. So. I, I definitely really want to hear about Bernie Madoff. I think that's a subject of great interest for this audience and, and of myself and, and yeah, your yeah. involvement. With well, let's, well, could you talk just first about how you transitioned from going dealing with Italian organized crime to white-collar crime? I mean, I, I'd like to transition sure. from yeah, one to well, the other. How I did it, actually, I used uh, white-collar crime techniques against the mob mm-hmm. because it was so hard to get them on recordings and social clubs. And as I said, I had to go miles to go two inches just to try to get a bug in a certain place. But once I, you realize that a lot of these guys are still involved in white-collar crimes. They were in, they were in um, commodities markets. Uh, they were in all kinds of stuff, all kinds of ways to manipulate markets and, and doing white-collar crimes. So we started to do that. 
and I finished my last case uh, when organized crime was basically the arena case and everything. Then I went over to the foreign counterintelligence side. Then what happened was I actually was on a, on a golf trip with, with a friend. He goes, you know, uh, we're looking for somebody to do asset forfeiture work for the FBI. And he, he, was a, he was an agent. He was a supervisor, a very good friend of mine. And he said, we're looking for somebody to do asset forfeiture. I said, I'm ready. I was 55 years old, ready to transition to after my career. He goes, really? I, I, you know, you're a go-getter with the, you know, the FBI and everything. I said, look, time has changed. It's, you know, it's time to go do something else. So what happened was they, they, um, I put my resume in. They hired me. Uh, it was pretty funny because they didn't, you couldn't get a break of service, how the government works. If I retired on a Friday and I didn't start the next Monday, you have a break in service. So they have to do a whole background investigation, which could take up to a year. So I actually retired on February 3rd and started doing this February 6th. So I didn't have any time off, you know. So what I did, we started working um, asset forfeiture cases. And now we're looking at the bank's books and records and things like that to follow the money. And Bernie Madoff was just an amazing guy. I can't believe he did what he did, all right? I wasn't a case agent. I just did the asset forfeiture side. The case agents had the case, and they had some complaints, so they started investigating him. They had the SEC looking at him. And now this is a man that was in charge of NASDAQ way back. Yeah. I mean, very reputable guy. You would never think that he would do something like this. And he'd go, like, golfing with SEC executives. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the the man, I mean, I, I never met him personally, but... This man had no conscience. <laughs> People were begging him to take their money because he was promising them fantastic returns on their money. And actually, I have a friend of mine who's a real estate developer. He, one of his friends said, look, you got to go to Bernie Madoff. He'll take all your money, put it in there, and you know he's going to give you 12% a month on your money. And my friend said, that doesn't sound right. I'm not doing that. He goes, thank goodness I didn't do that. So what happened was I started following the, the corporation's money and his personal money. He had accounts over the Isle of Man, or for England, okay, yeah, and which I wasn't really that familiar. And I found I found a couple of billion dollars of. They're of like this. tax havens, right? They are tax havens. They had Cayman Islands. He had houses all over. And what we did, we started to do really a financial workup on him. So when it came time to arrest him, we seized all his assets, okay, and we got the really good f- fundamentals on where everything went. He spent so much money, and <clears throat> the unique aspect was I went to, I went to his office right after he was arrested. His office was nothing spectacular, believe it or not. You would think that somebody had these billions of dollars of assets and everything else that he would have a super office. It really wasn't. One of the unique things, I I walked into his office. He had this three-foot screw right behind him. It's like a little rusted screw. And all I can think of is when somebody came in there, they don't know, but I'm going to screw you. <laughs> that's, that's my interpretation. What, why would you ever have, to have a screw sitting there behind you, a three-foot screw, right? A big old um, a wooden screw. It's sort of all rusted. And he had like a little cone of silence, believe it or not, in his, in his office. He had a little section. It was all glassed in. And he had a little thing for music in there so he can have private conversations and nobody could hear it. So you knew he was backing that up. But it was truly amazing. I went into his uh, computer room. He had an old dot matrix printer, you know, with the green stripes and white stripes. Yep. With the, everybody got the same um, investments. They were just different amounts. Exactly the same. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everyone was, they, they couldn't make up all kinds of, they didn't invest anything, okay? And they would give people their statements on old dot matrix printers. Holy shit. 
I mean, I saw it. It's un- it was unbelievable. And everybody, from what my knowledge is, they, everybody had the same exact investments, but a, different amounts. <laughs> so you had to have somebody on the inside that knew what everybody's account was, and they had to plug in the numbers. And it was, but I mean, it's still incredibly sloppy. I mean, absolutely, it, it, it's unreal that he got away with it so long. That's my point. Yeah. I said I can't believe that people would, you know, when people look at things like this, you know, human nature is an amazing feature, and people, when it comes down to money, you know, they look at, wow, I'm going to make fantastic money, and they look at their statements, look at, I'm now worth two million dollars. I only gave him five hundred thousand or something, you know. They're they're figuring, oh, I'm going to let it ride. The guy's doing great stuff for me. But meanwhile, he's living a, a life of luxuries. He's got all these boats, and it's really crazy stuff. So you were able to apply some of the techniques that the FBI used in combating organized crime to go after Bernie's assets. Sure. And shut it all down at once. Yeah. And, and we use the you know, white collar crime techniques, good bank records, you know, wire transfers, everything else we could find. And uh, it's re- really amazing. Everything's computerized now. We get this stuff. And we could really, f- you do a workup on somebody, you can say, see exactly where they're spending the money, where they, how much comes in and how much goes out and where it goes. And that's what we did. We traced their money all over the world. I remember one of the big controversies with Bernie Madoff was when <clears throat> when he got arrested, a lot of people were debating whether his wife really knew what was going on. I'd love to hear your take on that. I find it very surprising that she didn't have any type of knowledge what he was up to. I mean, that that's obviously the defense that she had to use. Yeah, yeah. Because there was no other defense for it other than lack of knowledge. Now, this guy, you know, he was one of the biggest ripoffs of a Ponzi scheme in, in world history. And she had absolutely no clue. And then you look at the two sons, the one son committed suicide right after it. You know, they knew what was going on. They had to know. And the remorse and the problems and the, the destruction of the family. And, um, you know, there's no doubt in my mind she had to have an inkling what was, not only more of an inkling, but she had some knowledge of what's go- what happened. Do you think there's another Bernie Madoff out there somewhere? There's always going to be a Bernie Madoff, no matter what. I, I can give you cases that we worked. Uh, there was one out in Long Island. Um, this guy named uh, Nicholas Cosmo had a, a company called Agape. He had over $100 million from 5,000 investors out Long Island. And he was promising. He, he said, we're doing short-term bridge loans to companies. And the guy was already a felon. All right? He <laughs> so, he, have, so he shouldn't be doing that in the first be, place. He's not allowed to do it. Right. Nobody's, nobody was watching him, whatever. And he, they, they had $100 million worth of investment. These people turned in their 401ks, the IRAs, because it was such a great investment. And they had these young kids selling this stuff. They were in there. It's like a boiler room and making phone calls. Oh, it sounds like Wolf people. on Wall Street. That's exactly, yeah. that's exactly the type of thing that happened. And finally, you know, and he started taking their money and investing it in commodities, high-risk investments. <laughs> the guy was horrible. He lost everything. <laughs> Holy he shit. made no money. And he, they were all living, you know, these, even as the guys that were selling the, the, the product, they were making $10 million, $7 million out of this. They were these young kids at 23 years old. They're, they're rich as could be. And when you can't pay the, you know, the money out, everything collapsed, and that's how we, they got them out there. You know, I don't know if you have any visibility on this whatsoever, um, but it do, this case does intersect with, um, with finance and, and perhaps white-collar crime. Is, uh, <laughs> Jeff Epstein was a teacher in Brooklyn, and he had this meteoric rise, somehow becoming a hedge fund to only billionaires, and within a few years. Right. And, and now, the, I mean, he's not on trial for white-collar crime, but he's on trial for uh, human trafficking and really? under, underage girls. Right. Huge, huge scandal. 
Um, Ties but, to the Clintons and the Trumps. And, uh, uh, he was. I mean, oh he tra- he traveled in some big circles. Big circles. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to ask if you'd ever. No, come I'm not familiar that. with that. But yeah. you know, that's the thing. A lot of these investment guys that do these Ponzi schemes and everything, they are very intelligent, articulate, and they can. They can sell you anything, and what? that's the thing. They suck in these people, and it sounds great, you know? Like, like you said with a mob boss, I mean, why do you think they don't just contribute to society in a, in a lawful way? Uh, is it ego? No, it's, it's well, how they're brought up. Yeah. You know, they, these guys are from the school of hard knocks. You know, most of these guys were, became street thugs. They were in gangs, you know, and you needed to do that to survive on the killed. streets. That's exactly. And especially in the older days, you know, and now it's, I don't think it's like that so much. I mean, you see John Gotti's son had enough. Because he knew that the uh, feds were always going to be on him. He didn't want any more of it, you know. So he got out of the life, you know. But well, that really went legit. Yeah. And, but these guys, you know, like, our, again, Carmine Persico and all these uh, Lucchese and these guys, they grew up in the, on the streets. And they had, the, as you said, either kill or be killed. And then they just graduated, got bigger, and they thought of better schemes. You know, they got into drugs. I had a retired NYPD cop telling me about busting up the Irish mob here in the city. They were ruthless. Yeah, he said they were crazy. The Westies. Crazy. Yeah. Just like out of their minds on cocaine all the time, drunk off their asses. I had sources that told me some of those guys were actually doing hits for the mob. For the Italians. Yep. And they cross lines there a little bit. They go out there, kill somebody, then get paid and that was it, you know? They were very, very ruthless back on the, on the west side. Wow. The, the latest guy to be arrested in Ponzi scheme or the high-profile figure, I don't know if you followed, was that guy Craig Carton on Sports Radio 66. Uh, I mean, I know it's like a lesser thing, but, you know, to pay back these massive gambling debts, that, that was pretty crazy. And this yeah. guy who was a number one rated radio host making millions of dollars is now going to be in jail for the next three years. It's, isn't that crazy? Yeah. You know, and you look at it, you know, people... If they have a, a dead end and they know that something's going to happen to them, they come up with you know creative ways to get some financing, and I'm sure that's what he did. And with this ticket scheme, yeah, I mean, but crazy, you know, just why would you do that? Because you're going to pay the piper sooner or later. You know, somebody's going to catch on to it, and a lot of times these people don't look down the road what's going to happen. You know, and uh, they just do what works expediently for them. There, they got the money and. They don't look at the consequences. Yeah, for those outside of New York who might not know, I mean, this guy's like a local celebrity here right. on, you know, Sports Radio 66, major channel. And he was, uh, you might know a little bit more, but he was basically taking money from these major hedge fund guys and promising them tickets to big events, you know, Metallica and, and right. other big concerts. And he apparently did not really have these tickets. Right. And he was using that money to pay off gambling debt. And according to him, he had this massive gambling problem. I heard him give the whole interview on um i'm trying to think of where it was but he he, he did an in-depth interview about this on espn radio right. and said that he was such a gambling addict that he would get into at 4 a.m for his morning show uh and there were nights where he would get a helicopter to a casino around here like foxwoods at midnight uh and gamble for a few hours get into his radio show and you know his his wife didn't know it was this big of a problem and he got so caught up in it that he needed to pay this debt some way. Right. You know, the, the, um, it's, it's really amazing. I, I don't, I'm not up on it really right now, but you know how it's always difficult to get theater tickets, concert tickets. And I had a source way back. This is back in the 80s. And he started one of the first ticket-broking companies in, uh, in existence. And it, over in New Jersey, was, it was uh, allowed, you know. It was legal. And he had this company called Concert Bandwagon. And what he would do is he'd go to all, every major show, 
go into the guys that had the tickets and pay them. He goes, you ever notice these guys make $30,000, but they have a million-dollar boat? He goes, that's because we're paying them off. They're making all kinds of money. Again, I don't know what's going on now. This is way back. And he would get the prime seats on every show, wow. every, every concert, <laughs> you know, and um, you know, Madison Square Garden. And he'd be paying these guys off, and he, and he would take the tickets, and he'd sell them for $1,000. He'd pay face value for it and sell them for $1,000, $2,000. And it's, it's an amazing amount of money he was making. I, I wanted to ask you um, and, and talk about the politicization of the FBI. But before we get there, the other assignment you had, which I, I find very interesting, is that you worked um, foreign counterintelligence right. for the Bureau. Yep. Uh, what was your experience like there as far as, you know, what you're allowed to talk about? Well, it was very unique. It, it, was, it was kind of funny how, how things end and then something else begins. I had, um, I had one of the major sources in... In the, uh, in the FBI for an organized crime. And it was my opinion that my supervisor didn't want me to have him anymore because he had friends, whatever. He wanted somebody else to have the source. So the next thing I know, he's giving me a hard time. I had a huge battle with him one day. And I said, you know what? I'm leaving the office. You know, And I leave the office. I get a phone call, and it's from a supervisor on the foreign counterintelligence side in, in operations. And I have no idea what they did. <laughs> And I had met this fellow. He was in an informant unit down at headquarters. I was there for two weeks, and we became very good friends. His name was Mike Fallon, very smart guy, articulate. He goes, you know what, Ken, he goes, you have a great reputation, and everybody knows you, knows you're a good worker, and we'd like to have you over in our unit. And he said, you'd be interested. I said, sure, definitely interested. He goes, really? I said, yeah. He goes, this was on a Wednesday. And he goes, when can you start? I said, how about Monday? He goes, you're kidding me. I said, no, I'm, I'm ready. I've, I've had enough with this and everything else because you're always fighting Department of Justice and things like that, which we can get into later if you want. But I had enough. He goes, okay, I'll make the phone calls. So I then called my, my current boss. I said, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And he goes, that's fine. And I was gone by Monday. And this was a unit um, in, the, in the FBI. We worked uh, with other intelligence agencies. We did some magnificent, great stuff for this country. And um, I can't talk about techniques or anything like that, but I can tell you this, that we, we were well watched. You know, we watched a lot of good things and we, we did a lot of good things for our country, a lot of intelligence gathering things. And it was six of some of the best years I, I've had. And um, I was saying before, I said, you know, some guys, when they don't have knowledge of what's going on, I say, oh, you guys, you don't really don't do anything there because they don't know. Right, right. And I said to him, I said, let me tell you something. I did more in one day than you've done in your 10 years for the safety of this country. You have no clue. And this, this is a great unit, and these guys do some fabulous stuff. There's some great brains out there. I mean, far beyond what I have that really can think on how to go against our adversaries. And that's what we did. We went, and we have, as I said, virtually every country is after us. And I'm talking, you know, Great Britain, France, or uh, Japan, China, Russia. They're all looking to try to get an edge over us economically. And this, we're trying to watch and keep up to make sure that we, you know, we can uh, thwart their, their efforts towards us. And there's been a lot of talk in the FBI, but in, in every, across our government, about counterterrorism since 9-11. I right. mean, we put the focus there for a reason. Um, but how would you rate this threat that comes from adversarial nations? Well, I, I think it's, <clears throat> it's always going to be there because you have people that have such different cultures from us. They're, they're jealous and the religious fanatics that are out there, and they don't care if they die doing what they, you know, what they do. It's your experience over in Afghanistan and such, right? And that, that's the scary part. When you have somebody that doesn't care, how are you going to thwart this? And that's right, why right. our intelligence gathering has to be top-notch. And even as good as we can be, you're going to miss things because there are people that are very quiet, very stealthy, 
and they have they they figure whatever ways we can find them. They learn that, then they find alternate ways to communicate and alternate ways to uh, commit these heinous, heinous acts. You know, so it's always going to be there, and that's why they they took the FBI and made it more into uh, intelligence for terrorism and everything. Because you know what happened in 9/11 should never happen ever again, but it's it's scary. You know, really, especially with Iran, with the technology they're getting, they, they don't care what they do, and they're. they're main goal is to take us down whatever which way they can is that a tough balance for the bureau to find to balance counterterrorism between versus say organized crime say uh countering intelligence operations from foreign countries i mean you have to find a balance between oh absolutely things. yeah they they look at the stacks you know we have the bean counters down in headquarters <laughs> that they count bodies and what who's allotted to certain programs and things like that so they they know to put certain people you know certain amount of people for the terrorism aspect and they've really gotten quite prolific at it they've gotten very very good at you know looking at who the suspects are the countries uh, you know we have very good uh, ability to uh, monitor conversations you know and they're coordinating with the CIA the NSA and you know that's why when when you look at like I'd, I'd say maybe civil libertarians that worry about the government big brother well you need to do things to be to be protected to protect our population exactly right so you have some good and some bad you know but you know at at the end no matter what it's always going to change it's it's like a um uh, an amoeba morphing into something else you know and that's what they're doing in, in the terrorism aspect and they're going to come up with unique ways one of my scariest feelings are you know they, they can uh, miniaturize atomic bombs you know, and you look at Iran, they don't care what they do. They can come in and do, and one of the concerns was a dirty bomb in New York. What would that do to our economy if they set something off? You know, you just send little pieces bit by bit and get an apartment and then let it go. And, you know, that's the thing. We have to be really diligent about it. And that's why the, the FBI and the government's really is looking at the terrorist aspect. It's very, very scary. And... Uh the other question that we wanted to ask you that we want to talk about, well, first off, I just wanted to say I love talking to guys like you, Ken, because <laughs> I, I love talking to cops because it's uh, like my normal work, at, you know, working as a journalist, I often talk to people in the intelligence community. I often talk to people in the military and I'm like, oh, I can't really talk to you about that, Jack, you know, but with cops. What you guys do all becomes public knowledge after the prosecution, exactly. after the case. Right. Like 98% of the case is public knowledge. So, I mean, you guys can really go in depth and talk about, right. you know, the ins and outs of this. So it's like a really great conversation. So thank you. But um, we want to talk about the politicization of the FBI. And, I, I mean, I have, as a, as a layperson, I've never been a law enforcement officer, looking at it and seeing on the outside in. And um, I'm not particularly partisan. I don't. Whatever my feelings are or aren't about President Trump, I just want to see the facts come out. And if there's corruption, I'd like to see prosecutions. Right. But I'm not interested in witch hunts, right? Exactly. So I watch what's going on in the public sphere. And um, you, know, you had even mentioned to me some things about Comey and Brennan and making people um, who were directors of the CIA or the director of the FBI making these pretty bombastic statements right. in public. And... Um, it's like, wow, these are, and they're retired now, I get it, but these are institutions that once prided themselves on unemotional, objective analysis. Exactly. Exactly. And that, you know, that's, that's the upsetting part about the, all of this, that these, these leaders came out and they're making all these public statements and they're 
whether your feelings on Trump are one way or the other, they should not be making these statements, you know, because when Brennan, you know, made all these statements that what um, Trump has done is treasonous and all this other kind of stuff, and then, he's, and then he has a, the nerve to say, well, I got some bad information. You yeah, I mean? yeah, that was I, surreal. I said, listen, yeah. the CIA does not get bad information. If you get bad information, you don't use it. Well, and, you, and, and furthermore, if he had information... And he said it on, I mean, that was an illegal statement he made. That was a divulging of classified information. That's crazy. It really is. <laughs> That's illegal from the get-go. So the, the upsetting <laughs> aspect is when you, when you really do an analysis of these leaders, from Brennan to uh, Comey uh, to Clapper, these guys, they look more of an appearance of like political hacks than they do real leaders of, of the federal institutions that they represent. And I have never seen a director of the CIA or the FBI come out with statements like they have. Usually when the director's done, whether they get fired or they leave, they go into public life or they retire and you just go off into the sunset like the old Westerns, you know, right off. And that's it. Well, These guys are not going away. What do you think of Bob Mueller then? Um, as a director, he wasn't the best around, to be honest with you. But um, he's a very adept man. Um, I don't know when he found that there was no collusion or whatever, and I, I'm only going by what I see in reports. I have nothing to do with anything out of that. But um, Mueller has always been known as a stand-up guy that mm -hmm. would do the right thing, and I think he gave it a good shot, you know, to do what he could do um, and investigate and found nothing. And you got to live with it. That's, that's what it is, you know, and this discourse that's going on between the political parties to try to get a political advantage, I think it's just hideous. Do you think he did a good job at staying impartial? I think overall, I haven't really read the report. I just, you know, the, here the, read right, the summaries right. and things like that. I think oh, it's okay. But when you look at who he had his, on his team, you know, again, what a, I, I gave an example earlier before we went on air. I said, when I first became an FBI agent, one of our instructors said, you see that emblem up there? It says Department of Justice and the FBI underneath it. He goes, the Department of Justice has been trying to take over the FBI for years. And he goes, so far, now this is 1981. And he said, so far, we've been able to repel them. But there's going to be a time when the Department of Justice is going to come in, and they're going to be in management, and they're going to run what's going on. Now, the problem is a lot of Department of Justice employees are political appointees. So now you have people that are political appointees coming into a law enforcement agency. Now, human nature being the way it is, then you look at things you know, that were done, it's kind of scary to see the end result, what, what really happened out of this stuff. And I guess the truth will come out later on. And, and the FBI, the, who are the political appointees? There's the director. He can appoint anybody he wants. The personnel director, uh, assistant director. But the director is the only real political appointee? But he's the, the first and only appointee by the president. Gotcha. Okay. And then he can bring in whoever he gotcha, wants. Right. And that, they never did that years ago, back from um, uh, the very beginning. You know, and nobody brought in politicians or people that were in uh, political appointed well, positions. Uh, you know, when we had Jack Devine, who was the uh, director of operations for the CIA at one time, we interviewed him and he said, you know, the agency is actually very lucky in the sense that our only political appointee is the director and maybe his chief of staff. But that's about it. Well, I could tell you a story. There was uh, James Kallstrom, who was the assistant director in New York. He was there for a number of years. We were there for Flight 800. I was in a command center out there in Mauritius, which was quite an experience. Um, but Jim Kallstrom, you know, he, he, he gave a speech one time, and I, I, I actually really noted that he said Comey brought in a bunch of sycophants, and he didn't like Comey one bit. And he said what he's done to the Bureau is 
really, really bad. And he's assistant director. He had a lot of contacts. So if that's who I rely upon, people like that, and then say, wow, you know, that's, that's what this man did. What do you think, what, what is the, uh, before we get a little bit deeper into it, what is the appropriate relationship between DOJ and FBI? What, what, what are their lanes? Well, the lanes should be the FBI is an autonomous investigative agency. We handle the investigations. They're the, the cops. Depart- they're the cops. The Department of Justice are the prosecutors. Now, we investigate the case. Sometimes we need subpoenas. Sometimes we need court orders. We have to work with the U.S. attorneys to get the orders and everything. They're supposed to provide services for us to make these make cases. Sure due process. Due process, everything, and make sure that we follow the law, which we do. I've never seen anybody ever cut corners, okay? But what they're supposed to work with us. Now, the lane is that they prosecute, and we, if they don't feel they have enough evidence, all right, go out and get more evidence. We go and get the more evidence, give it to them. Okay, now we have enough, and we have witnesses, we have tapes, we have uh, financial records, and they'll go and prosecute. And you work together, you prepare for trial, and then you do the trial together, and that's the way it's supposed to work. But now it's to a degree where the Department of Justice says, okay, I want you to go here and go talk to this guy. I want you to do this. Is, that, is that lawful? They're, you're a team. I don't know. If, you know, I don't think it's illegal at all. But it's it's, it's this is what's happened. That now they're taking over, uh, basically the direction of cases the and things like that. Politicization of of uh, law enforcement investigations. And that and that's the the scary part. Again, a lot of these people. Again, the assistant, the United States attorneys, Southern District, Eastern District, all across the country. They're a political appointees. The president appoints them. So it's, when you have a president like Obama, he put a lot of liberal people in there. So that's, that's in the culture, and they were in there for a very long time, and they start appointing other, other people. So when you look at what happened with the Russian investigation, with, you know, with the um, uh, salacious, salacious uh, dossier and things like yes. that, and then Orr and all these people, they're all liberals. And you, you kind of wonder, you know, what's really going on here? And they, who directed who? You know, did the FBI have this case and then brought it to them? I, I don't know. It looks like... The Department of Justice brought it over to the FBI, you know? I, I mean, I suppose maybe it'll all come out in the wash and it's something for the history books, but just from my perspective, it, it does seem pretty clear that they hyped it up to such an extent. And um, I am glad we live in a country of, you know, due process where they, you know, right. they, they did their investigation, they came back and said, okay, well, there wasn't collusion. We looked, it, it, but it's not there. Right. I have worked on over 30 wiretaps. I've, I've sat on the wires up in Connecticut when I was up there. I sat on wires down here. I wrote a bunch of affidavits. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of, of a situation that happened with the Department of Justice. We were doing, I was doing the, um, the affidavit for the car bug. I had four different sources, and one source was a female, and she worked in an office of this lawyer where Victorino was having all his meetings. Where better place to have a meeting, because they know they can't bug it, the guy's a lawyer, unless we get enough probable cause, which the Department of Justice doesn't want to go after attorneys, which I had a hard time getting a search warrant for his office. Believe me, it took me well over a year. It was crazy. Wow. So... They, my source was working for the attorney, and she was in with the mob. And the mob was in the office every single day, and she was, my source gave me all this information. So we're writing the affidavit, and the U.S. attorney, assistant United States attorney that was working with me, said, okay, read my part that I put in there. And I said, well, you really can't. I said, you're putting down, the person's a female. She works the hours from 8 until 5. You know, and she's in the office every day, and that's her bona fides for the information. I said, you can't put that in there. She goes, if that doesn't stay there, we're not doing the order. 
So I'm sitting there looking at her. You didn't want it in there because it would blow your source. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that source would be dead in 10 minutes after this gets revealed. There's no doubt about it. So I said, you know what? I said, well, two can play this game. I said, all right, fine. Leave it in there. They left it in. We finished the whole thing. And finally, it took weeks to get it together before we put the car bug in. I said, that's to go. If you really look at what happens with wiretaps, and a lot of people in the, in the country don't understand this. We're getting the probable cause in the FBI, and we work with the Department of Justice. So after we finish writing the affidavit and get the order, it goes back. We send a copy down to FBI headquarters, the legal unit. They look at it. They look at it with a fine-tooth comb, and it goes down to the Department of Justice in their uh, review unit. And then it goes up through different uh, realms of authority, and it has to be approved all the way up. I can't tell you how many times. Take this period out. Put a comma here. Crazy little, even grammatical things. And it goes all the way up to the top, and then it's finally approved by the assistant director and also Department of Justice U.S. attorney, their representative. And then it comes back to us, and then we go to the uh, court and, and swear it out before a judge. So I was very cognizant of every bit of information that was true and accurate. And you stood up there. I was still nervous because sometimes you don't know if a source is going to be lying to you or whatever, but you try to do the best you can to corroborate it. So I always made sure I corroborated by not only one source. I had four sources in this one particular uh, affidavit. And I was still nervous swearing out because I was worried that something might not be true and I'm going to go to jail. Mm. That's why this FISA warrant is kind of scary because that's the, the level that it has to go to. So anyhow, what happens was the, we get it all done. And the U.S. attorney's uh, assistant says, okay, let's get a sign. I said, I'm not signing it. She goes, why not? I said, you take that paragraph out that reveals my source. She went nuts. <laughs> I'm getting you fired. She called my ASAC, uh, Don North, called him up personally right in front of me. I want Ken Steiger fired. What he has done is an abomination. We want to get this thing done. He's keeping us from doing it. and He's stopping the whole investigation. The, and this will not happen now. Don North said to the assistant United States attorney, if Ken Steiger said it doesn't belong in that affidavit, it does not belong there. Damn. Take it out or forget it. Big balls. <laughs> really? Absolutely. And she, she was, as my mother would say, she was madder than a wet hen. I'm telling you. She was so mad. And she had to take it out. What's the big deal? Take a paragraph out. You're, you're getting stuck on something that you can have somebody killed. Yeah, and yeah. it didn't matter to her. And that's one of the things, the differences I find between the FBI. When we, we develop these sources, you become a little bit emotionally in, involved with these people. You don't want to see them get whacked. You don't want to sure, see them get yeah. killed. You don't want to see them getting beaten up. And they're calling you. They're calling me when problems come up. The Department of Justice, they look at it. They don't care. Yeah, it's just a name. I mean, it's just a name to them. And they, they don't mind if people get burned at times, some of these uh, assistants. And it's kind of scary. And that's the, that's the difference. And we have to go back out on the streets. And if you burn somebody, what's your reputation going to be if they, the word gets out that you had somebody as a right. source and the guy gets burned? You know? So it's, it's, really, it's and, really a tough uh, road to, uh, to go and down. And from your perspective, this is increasingly a problem that the Department of Justice is intervening they're coming in laterally and telling the fbi where they need to go what they need to do in my opinion yes you know it's it's very very difficult for these agents i mean i, I know especially out in long island you know they're working the gang task force out there and you know some of these assistants you know sit there i want it done this way and you know and they have some battles and the fbi loses almost every single one because the management backs up the department of justice you know okay. hey we have to get along you know and that's you have to do what's right I'd rather do what's right first and even lose a case than do something that I, I have to live with for the rest of my life. It's somebody that's 
gets killed or something happens, you know? And, and I mean, this is also part, it sounds like part of the division between, you know, labor and management. I mean, if a prosecutor doesn't walk the streets, they don't necessarily know where to look in the first place. I mean, that's exactly, kind of, that's like somebody like you knows that part of it. Absolutely. It's, we're out on the streets. Again, I say we're out on the streets. I mean, I was for years, but you know, you're out there, you're talking to people, you're developing sources and it's, it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's not easy to get somebody to do something, especially an organized crime venue, to get them to talk to you when their nature is not to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And everybody, you know, uh, human nature is very unique. Some people might be mad at somebody, they'll give you information, or they might want money or revenge or whatever. And you, you use those tools in your tool bag to get these people to talk to you. And when you're out there dealing with these people, and then if the Department of Justice, they don't care, so what are you going to do? You know, again, you're sitting there, some people, somebody might get killed, they might get beaten up. I had one source that was, that was shot and killed. All right. He was he was in a hotel room. I don't know who did it, but they talked about it from other sources. And they said, yeah, we've got this guy, you know, and I couldn't put a case together. You know, he was shot right in the heart in the hotel room. And it still affects me. I saw the man dead there, you know, and it really bothers me. And the guy was a family guy and he was a guy that had the uh, ticket operation. He oh, was really? a bookmaker, too. You know, he did all kinds of stuff with the Colombo family. And he had a great family, nice wife, the kids. I met them and stuff. And then the man's dead now, you know, and it's, it's really it gets upsetting. But when you have the Department of Justice in there, they, they put a wall down a lot of these people. They don't have compassion. They don't understand what you're doing out on the streets and how you're a reput- I have a reputation. I had a reputation out there. I was a good guy. I would do the, always do the right thing, you know. Something you were saying earlier uh, brought another question to my mind. You were talking about civil libertarians and kind of the line between people having their personal privacy and freedom and you guys or what you you did do having to watch over that now in today's um society we've had a lot of these lone wolf attacks where people find out on facebook you know if you look at the san bernardino shooting that these guys were radicalized and people say why why didn't we do anything when they're posting all this stuff about you know in some cases radical islam in some cases other some other radical ideology where is the line on that where, you know, someone gets a knock on their door because they're posting something completely insane on Facebook and, you know, we could get someone out of commission before they actually go through with an act like that? Well, that's that's the problem. You're violating people's rights when you're going to monitor them. But if they're posting it out on Facebook, you know, the FBI can't be everywhere. And that's the problem. You have 350 million people. How many members? And there's not that many FBI agents, really. Like no. actual badged agents. There's not very many, it's, are there? I don't know. It's, I might be around tops 10,000 all across the world. When I came in, it was 5,000 of them, of us, you know, and that, that was very, very few. So when I finally became an FBI agent, I said, my gosh, I'm only one of 5,000, you know, throughout the whole world. But what they did was when Louis Free became director, he ended up putting uh, legats, legal attaches, and put FBI in all the, off, all the different embassies, embassies throughout the yeah. world. So Because he knew terrorism was going to start to perk up, and he was way ahead of the, uh, the curve on that. So <clears throat> when you look at it, you know, obviously Facebook, and this is what the problem is with the libertarians and stuff. I mean, we look at Apple when we're trying to get the information from the off terrorists. The, off the iPhones. They cooperated zero. They would not give us information. So the FBI had to go to a hacker, from what I understand. They paid the guy a million dollars to hack into the phone so they can get all the data. And that's, a, that's the problem here. You know, when you look at you know, Facebook, they're not cooperative like you really think they should be because 
the FBI is not just looking at everybody. They have probable cause. They, they have a reason to think that something is happening. They're not just going after Joe Schmo for, this, for the sake of going after him. You're not going to waste your time with that. So somebody obviously might have made a phone call, say, hey, you got to look at this guy. You look at the postings, and you, know, you want to find account information. And they're not overly cooperative. So you got to get court orders. I mean, it takes a long time. And by that time, that guy could be out committing heinous, heinous acts, you know, killing people. Uh, you know, just like the last week, I, I think it was mostly revolving around Twitter, actually, but there's this big consternation, like, how come Twitter has no problem being able to censor a group like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, but they can't censor white nationalists? And, I mean, the people just don't understand that there are these legal distinctions, like, ISIS is on the foreign terrorist organization list. Right. They're a foreign entity. They're on the FTO. Like, fuck them. They don't have any rights. Right. <laughs> and Americans, even Americans who express ideas we really disagree with and we really don't like, like white supremacists, they're American citizens. They have legal protections. There's a big difference between the two. Well, that's the whole thing. You know, when you're in law enforcement, they drill that into you. When you go into the academy and every day when you're dealing with the U.S. Attorney's Office, you don't want to violate anybody's rights. And that's what I always, I, I kind of joke a little bit about organized crime. They have no rules. You know, they go out and do whatever they want. Terrorists have no rules. But law enforcement have rules. You have guidelines. And we don't go out and violate people's rights. And I, I know there are all these conspiracy theories that the FBI is doing all this stuff. And, they're, you know, your phones are clicking or whatever. They don't, they don't have that ability. Believe me when I tell you that. It, it doesn't happen. So I, I got to tell you something that, that kind of ties into this. Uh, I worked with a guy, I won't, I won't mention his name, um, in one of my earlier gigs who um, was like a huge fan of Fight Club. And I guess he had some bad instance at an Apple store in New York City. On his Facebook page, he wrote his name, which I won't say. I mean, it's out there, but might walk into an Apple store on Fifth Avenue with an, a Marilite AR-10 gas-powered semi-automatic weapon and pump round after round into one of th those smug, fruity little concierges, uh, which he paraphrased from Fight Club. And, you know, some agency came to his door. He did get a knock, and, and sure. they looked into it. You know, ultimately, he got off because they realized there was no real threat there. But it was just so insane to me that this guy went to court over this, and he's like, I'm a disabled Army veteran. You know, this is not what I fought for. You don't fucking write that on Facebook. I don't care who you are. I don't. I don't care that you were an army veteran. And you know, common, I thought it was such a lame excuse. And then you know, NPR did a piece on this guy and it was very sympathetic towards him. And I'm, I'm not sympathetic towards him in the least. You he was, don't he was, write that. He was threatening to kill civilians. I mean, yeah, and yeah. he's like, but, yeah. but it was a movie quote. Well, we don't know the context of that, right? And you don't. That's the problem. You don't know where these people are really coming from. You don't sure, know their sure. background. So when you see something like that, what if they didn't go and, and talk to him and he did kill a bunch of people, right? And then we'd be looking at you yeah, like, why didn't you do anything? Exactly. <laughs> you knew this was happening. And you didn't do anything. So at least they address it. You know, common sense in life goes a long way. <laughs> and some of these people do not have any common sense. Yeah. I mean, and why would like, you why, post something like yeah, that? Yeah, why do crazy. I have SWAT teams coming at my door? I fought for this country. <laughs> and you can't use that as an excuse for yeah. that type of behavior. It's like people, like, I know you've heard it, Ian, people who call up to, like, Howard Stern and, and start talking about killing the president. Yeah. And, you know, Howard's like, yeah, you, you can't say that, man. Like, they're... Well, that type yeah. of stuff, I mean, we've had some crazy stuff when I worked on Wilkow, and, you know, we had to dump that type of stuff. That's why right. you have the eight-second delay. Um, right. You know, even on shows that are uncensored, they have it because you could curse on that show, but you can't go on air and threaten to kill someone. Right. You, yeah. you know, you have to dump that type of thing. And and you don't know when someone is being humorous and so, when someone is not. I remember Opie and Anthony a few years back 
got suspended from X, uh, what was XM at the time right. for the merger because they had a homeless guy in studio and he said he wanted to rape Condoleezza Rice. Oh, and, my you know, God. And oh my the God. whole argument was like, is <laughs> this is this free speech? And they were saying, well, you know, when is a homeless guy going to get the, uh, you know, opportunity to rape not, someone? Not the, the best defense. <laughs> you know, but that, that's a threat. It's a woman oh, yeah. who works wow. for the administration and you can't say things like that. And, it, you know, I'm sure they're thinking that this is funny. You know, that's a, they're kind of comics and stuff, but that's the problem. You know, the, now the, the tenor of the times now, you just don't know where people are coming from. So you have to, you know, really be cautious. You don't want to violate people's rights, but you have to make sure that you have the due diligence mm. and you do the right thing. We're in a know? world where school shootings are happening, crazy. workplace violence. Yeah. It's Old really country. a shame that yeah. the, the country is, I think there are so many people now. I mean, you have over 350 million people. I always looked at it. There was al- there's always a certain amount of insane people right, per, right. per 100 people. You have 350 million people. There's a lot of crazy people walking out there. And if you look at what happened, you know, uh, back in, in the days, we, we used to have Pilgrim State Hospital. A lot of these people were putting it into institutions. Then you had the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, uh, Creedmoor, they did a study on that, and all that stuff was done. Now these people are out on the streets. They have no place to go. And then they get into social media, yeah. and you, you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I mean, they don't people, take their medication. There's people doing shootings and broadcasting it on Facebook Live. I mean, and I think the goal of many of these people is to become immortal, to become right. famous. They have nothing else to live for. And with the current climate, you can become more famous than ever now for committing a heinous act of, than, of terrorism. Than working hard from 9 to 5 your entire life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look at Hinckley. You know, just, I mean, the band was insane trying to kill Reagan and stuff, you know, and just these people act on their impulses and they can't stop. And the man, he was insane for a long time, you know. Do you and, think it's worse today with uh, with the internet, with social media, that, that these people are, in a sense, committing copycat crimes, that they see someone else do it and like, oh, yeah, that's a good Oh, absolutely. Idea. Because, you know, now it's out there. They can, you can look up anything and you can see actual visual, visual uh, representations of what these people did and they get, you know, these people are, you know, have mental issues and they look at it and say, I could do that. You yeah. know, I'll be famous. I'll show them, you know, type of thing. You, you know what? This might have been a better question for someone like Dan Bongino, who was Secret Service that we had on, but I'm wondering your take on it. With the last two presidents in particular, you know, you have Barack Obama, who's the first black president. There's plenty of white supremacist activity out there. Donald Trump is hated by all types of groups. How many, you know, de- serious death threats to the president do you think intelligence has thwarted? I think they have dozens and dozens for both, you know, and these people, you know, they, they get so incensed and especially with the, the media and there's not much, so much, um, uh, material that's out there through the internet. These people access it and they get all worked up over it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, both presidents were pretty divisive, even stuff that's not true. Exactly. And they, 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 they believe this stuff, you know, and people post things that, you know, that, oh, this is the truth and it, what, you know, this is what happened and when, when in fact it's not even close to being it true. It reminds me of like that Pizzagate thing where the guy with a, with a rifle shows up at a pizza party or, yeah. a, or a pizza parlor in D.C. because he thinks the Democrats are running like pedophile parties or some crazy shit in the yeah. basement. It's like, you know, just think anybody can post anything. And well, that's the scary part. And people will, will, will believe it. Yeah, I mean, you know? we've discussed it. This is why the uh, families of uh, the Sandy Hook victims of those children are suing Alex Jones, because they you know, felt there were threats on their lives from him coming out there. There was one guy uh, who was a part of the family who started an organization to kind of take down the speech, the, the conspiracy stuff out there about the, the Sandy Hook families being actors and it being a hoax. And watching that uh, 
what what would you call it the um disposition the um deposition yeah deposition oh alex uh, with alex jones the thing that was that stood out in particular because i actually wanted to learn more about you know why they were suing him in particular but so one of these guys started an organization to get rid of this type of speech out there on the internet but he was not public about who he was and alex jones went out there and gave this guy's p.o box number on the air revealing his identity and the lawyer questioning alex jones was saying you know doesn't this mean that one of your fans who might be mentally ill or something could wait outside that P.O. box and possibly shoot this guy. I mean, these are serious things out there. To, to some people, this is just a guy giving out, you know, using his free speech. But to other people, this could, um, there could be a death involved in, so, in someone that they believe is involved in some crazy conspiracy theory. There's a lot of mentally ill people out there consuming yeah. media. And uh, it's weird because I am a true believer in 100% free speech at the same time. That I would say that does cross the line of free speech when it can involve. I don't know. There just has to be. I guess the way I would put it, there there has to be some responsibility of what you put out there, knowing that there are people who could consume what you're putting out there and believing whatever you're saying and want revenge for whatever it is you're putting right. out there. Well, you know, you, civility is going by the wayside. You know, when the people they're faceless entities behind a keyboard. And they feel that they can say whatever they want and go after him, and like an Alex Jones or whatever. Again, use some common sense. Whatever you say and do can affect other people's lives. People could die, get injured, or whatever. But there seems to be less control, you know. And you know, I grew up back in the, in the fifties and sixties. You respected people, you know. You didn't go on their property and all that kind of stuff. Everybody had your own little lane and everything. Nowadays, you know, they they don't mind getting in your face and they're doing all things on the internet and saying horrible things and rumors. And look at the kids at school. I mean, I mean, kids have been committing suicide because they're picked on all yeah, through the yeah. internet and everything. This is horrible. And because and that's just immature uh, activities. And these, these kids have been killing themselves because of statements of other people and they get ganged up on. And where are they going to go? What are they going to do? People just say these things on, on the Internet or on social media and they think there aren't any consequences of it. Exactly. You know, they don't think of it through how it impacts other people. Right. Absolutely. Especially, you know, in, in what you're talking about, you know, a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid, they obviously take things a little differently than a grown man. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, their brains aren't developed yet. They don't, the common sense is out the window. And, it, <laughs> you know, they just, they do things, you know, and then they're you know, very impulsive and it could be very negative. You know, as I said, you hear it all the time. And remember, there was one case where one of the girl's mothers was actually uh, tweeting and texting about this kid, you know, and she was Shit, ugly. Yeah, I remember, remember that? And the yeah. girl committed suicide mm-hmm. and the mother was involved with it. Yep. You know, I mean, just crazy stuff. I mean, this this is a breakdown of society, really, when you yeah. look at this type of stuff. You know, where's the respect? You know, and that's that's the one thing. And then law enforcement, you know, we really go out, you know, and try to respect everybody, respect their rights, and do the right thing. And if, and you want if we always did it. If you're going to do a case, you're going to do it right. There are no shortcuts. And I remember a reporter asked me one day about um, Sonny Franzese. He said, you know, do you think he was really set up with this bank robbery? And I said, listen. I've been around for 44 years. I have never seen anybody frame somebody because you couldn't get them on other, other charges. You know what I'm saying? So either we get them right and do it the right way, or you don't do it. And you get beat a lot, you know? I mean, just you can't make cases, and it's happened, you know? Have you ever thought about uh, going through your old case files and maybe interviewing some of these 
mobsters and writing about it? Absolutely. Um, there's two guys I want to interview and talk to. One is, uh, Victorina just got out of jail, I understand. And uh, this other fellow, Dennis Pappas, who was the lawyer. And Do you, you think know, they would be cool, like, sitting down having a beer with you? I don't you? know. I could be. <laughs> you know, as I, my understanding is Victorina became a, a preacher in jail. Really? So there might be a shot there. So I was going to write him, and next thing I know, he's, he's out of jail. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Because I, I've had so many unique experiences with these guys. I mean, not many people worked organized crime like I did and had the cases and, you know, especially the Colombo War and, you know, how everything transpired. And, you know, there was all kinds of crazy accusations about this fellow, um, an agent, Linda Vecchio, that he was on the, the mob side and was, I mean, it was, it got really nasty there for a while. It was horrible. And I just made sure no matter what I did, I stayed in my lane. I stayed true to the case and did everything the right way. Didn't cut any corner. So I knew I'd never have a problem with anything. But, you know, the, the informants are really, they're very, very tricky. They're a double-edged sword. Um, you're going to have a source that gives you great information, but next thing you know, you don't know if he's going back to the mob and saying, right, right. you know, they're going to put a bug in your social club. And I think that happened to me. A couple times? Once, once, in particular. And um, this guy named Scarpa was a source. He ended up, he was involved in, in the Colombo War. He was killing people all over the place. And he was a source. And... I'm almost positive he was the one guy who was asked, and I was going to put a bug in the social club. Next thing you know, they ripped the entire social club apart, and they put an apartment in there. <laughs> yeah, gone. They, they knew so something was there, yeah. Something happened, you know? And that tells me something happened with the guy. Um, as I said, a double-edged sword, and that's why you have to be... You don't take a gift from these guys. You don't socialize with them. You don't hang out. You don't go out with their families. You don't go to weddings, you know, with friends or whatever. You just... It's a business... Um, position and you just do everything the right way and you'll never have a problem and that, that when I go to bed at night I put my head on the pillow because I know I did the best I could every single day I treated these guys with respect and I did the best I could with all the information that we had and uh, we got a lot of guys the right way and I'm, I'm very thankful for that I had a you know, good time doing it and very unique experiences for sure I just uh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall to see, uh, see if you ever like sit down and have a drink with some of these guys and I'm just curious if there'd be like some mutual respect or if they'd be like I mean, I could understand if they hold a grudge, you know, if you threw, hey. you threw them in the slammer. Yeah, but I didn't do the illegal activities. Yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. kill people. I mean, you know, I, sorry. You I mean, know, you get, the way it goes. They, they made their choice. You made yours, you know. Right. Hey, it, it's almost like the old game of cops and robbers. Yeah, yeah. They're the bad guys, and it's our job to go chase them and, and get them and get them right, you know. And, you know, they fought the best they could in court and everything else. And, you know, and they were judged by 12 members of their peers, and they were convicted. And that's, that's it. They had many bites of the apple, and, you know, it's actually in your, your favor. You know, you can, all you had to do is convince one juror that, you know, it's not right. And what they did, they convicted him, and that, that's it, you know? I'm curious what you think some solutions are of what needs to be done at the FBI right now, because we've pointed out a lot of things that are going wrong. How can we turn this around? I think the, the new director, from uh, the information I have, he's doing the right thing. He's, he's changed all the upper management. Um, all those people that were involved in, in the, that, the investigation with the struck and all, the, all those people were all gone. So we had to put some good, responsible people in there. And I don't know who they are in particular because I haven't really followed up on it, but things that I've heard, he's put in great people in leadership, and uh, he's, he's riding the ship, you know. And when you look, you know, I think the, the rest of the story is yet to be written about the um, – uh, the dossier and how the case even got started. As I said, when I did wiretaps and uh, affidavits, I made sure I was 100% right down the line, and I, everything was factual, best of my ability. I did everything the right way. When you look and you hear the stuff about how they did this, it's 
disconcerting, you know. And then again, these these silly test, text messages got out, you know, between the two and whatever. I just I've never seen that in my life. As I said, I've been around the FBI for 44 years, never saw that. And we don't, and we're in the office. We don't talk politics. It doesn't happen. These people are mission oriented. You know, uh, obviously not the military, but, you know, these guys, everybody does their job and they have fun doing it. They, they enter, you know, they, they engage each other and talk like a regular, uh, like a family. And that's what they call it, the FBI family. And we respect one another and they do the cases. But I have never seen anybody ever talk politics, text politics, hate presidents or anything like that. You know, you, you always kept that inside, your, your professional side. You just did your job. Between that and what was going on with the... Uh the who was it? The security manager for the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, talking to reporters, and clearly had a political bias. Right. I mean, yes, you're right. That, it's disconcerting. It, it should never happen. That stuff. I know the reporters. Their job is to go out there. It's like develop informants, and they're going out to develop uh, their sources as law enforcement to find out what's going on and go into the Congress or whatever to try to get stories. Well, you know what? There's a lot of stories that really don't should not be told, you know, for the general public because, you know, it's it's secret information. They're trying to do the right thing, and the the stuff that comes out, you know, you're actually breaking down our our society by giving that information out. And you know, some of it could be vital and good, but other stuff because you have a political agenda. I don't care what your agenda is. You just do your job and you do it the right way. And then when you're done with your service, you walk away. And that's why I think it's upsetting that Comey's out there doing what he's doing, tweeting and writing books and doing all that stuff. Just you had your turn. You swung. You hit the ball a couple of times and you missed and then you're gone. Just go and live your yeah, life. Yeah. You know, I, when uh, when Comey was tw- I think he was tweeting out pictures of like him with the Wu-Tang Clan. Yes. That was the moment where I was like, OK, this guy has fallen in love with himself. With his, He's fallen in love with his own legend. And now we're <laughs> yeah. we're off the rails. And I, I know I have friends that, you know, like him. He was a prosecutor in, in, the, in New York at one time. And he was very highly respected, very likable guy. I mean, he, he walks into a room, you know, he's so tall, like 6'10 or something, he has so, quite a presence. And all my friends tell me that the guy was a great guy. And then I don't know what happened. You know, it's one thing we, we talk about, when people go down to headquarters, you get kind of like a, a lobotomy type of thing. <laughs> because these are, a lot of the, the management there, they're not real long-term investigators that understand the streets and how it goes with cases. A lot of the people do three to five years out on the streets and they go up in management and they go down to headquarters. Same with Brennan. I mean, he was a case officer for a hot minute and then spent the rest of his time as a bureaucrat. And that's the problem. You, you can't have bureaucrats that haven't really done the job. I'd rather see somebody with 10, 12, 15 years worth of experience out on the streets than getting down to management down in, in Washington because they understand what it takes to get the job done. They understand how it is to work and the difficulties you have with the Department of Justice to try to get cases pushed forward. I can't tell you the battles that I had with these people. It was unbelievable. Just uh, to be uh, objective here, though, you know, as you're saying, there, there's a lot of firsts in terms of what's going on with the FBI right now, the information being put out there. The other side of that coin, and I'm sure there's people listening thinking it, is this is also the first time we've had a president publicly go out there and criticize the FBI on his Twitter and say and, a lot of things that, that are pretty outrageous. And, and ask, you know, hackers, uh, talk about how great WikiLeaks is, yeah. you know, some things that we haven't seen before. Yeah, you know what? If you, if you really look at Donald Trump, who he is, the man was a construction icon in New York. He had to deal with the mob. He had to deal with labor unions. He's a tough guy. He's a street guy. And somehow he gets elected president of the United States. 
And that's who he is. I mean, he, had to, he has to fight a lot of battles. He had all kinds of lawsuits, everything else. And I'm not justifying what, what he's doing. What I'm saying, he's a street brawler. And it's, we've never had a street brawler as a president of the United States. And he believes what he believes. And, you know, I really think when he was doing those speeches that he was joking, you know, release that stuff. You know, I, I think it was more in jest than anything else. But, you know, your words have consequences, too. You know, and it's the big thing is when he came in, that's not presidential. You really shouldn't be saying that yeah, type of yeah. thing, you know. But it, but this is who he, the man is. He's a street brawler, and you take it to him, he's going to go after you. And, 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 I mean, people could criticize it, but it's what got him elected. All, absolutely. You know, I remember uh, that famous thing during the debates of Jeb Bush saying, you know, Donald, you're not going to criticize your way to the presidency or insult your way to the presidency, and he did. Yeah. I, th- I think America got really tired of the same old thing years and years threw in that and out. They see the Congress is not doing their their uh, their job properly, and they called it the swamp, which there's no doubt about it. You know, <laughs> when you look, you know, you know. It's, again, we talk politics now. You know, term limits are a great incentive for these people to do the right thing. These people have been in Congress 30 years. They're 80 years old. They've been there forever. They're institutionals. Uh, and it's institutions. Like they, they sent Trump as a wrecking ball. Exactly. Yeah. And that was the point I was going to make. He came in, he goes, look, this is a, this is a mess down here. I'm going to do the best I can to straighten it out. And that's why they put a brawler in there. And I forget what writers said, you know, the Republicans and the conservatives always like, they go to these battles and they talk a little bit, but the Democrats come out with knives and they attack and they make all kinds of accusations. You're racist, you're doing all this stuff. Well, he's the first guy that's come in and said, well, you guys are the bad guys. You know, you're the ones that are ruining the country. And that's his opinion, you know, and he's a brawler. And, and that, they're not used to that, and they can't take it. And that's why there's so, so much discourse now, because how dare you come after the institutions and everything else, you know? Uh, you look at Lindsey Graham, you know, my, my friends on the other side. But meanwhile, they hate each other. You know that, you know? And he keeps on calling them the friends and things like that, you know? But that's collegial activities that, you know, that you should be basically nice to them and put your point across and try to get votes and, and pass legislation. But it's gotten so vicious at this point, it's really, it's really scary. Yeah, and I, I don't know how you turn the clock back on that. I mean, geez. Term limits. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, that's the way I look at it, because you know what? These guys know they're going to be elected time and time again. I could say whatever I want. We could force you know, our, our opinions on people and things like that. And they get but, to be like the, the Harry Reeds, you know, yeah. who are just there forever. Yeah, and, they, you know, and it's, if you look at these guys, you know, I, I forgot who wrote the book, um, Throw Them All Out, I think it was. Um, it was all the inside dealings that they're doing in Congress, that these guys, when they leave, they're multimillionaires. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Harry Reid's a good example of that. Exactly. You know, the story I heard, he bought property in Nevada, Nevada, and they put a railroad through there, and he made multimillions, you know? This is stuff that shouldn't happen, you know? And that's why I think if you really did have term limits, people would be more, you know, like, you do your service in the the military or the FBI, and then you go and live your life, you know? And that's, go in there, it's it's an honorable thing to do service for our country, to legislate and things like that. Do your time, and that's the way I think it was de- designed by the founding fathers. Do your time there, do the best you can, and then go on well, with your life. I know we've uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but there's one thing I did want to ask. I don't know if Ian has anything, but one other thing I did want to ask before we let you go is um, about how Hillary Clinton was handled with oh the private email <laughs> server. And I think a lot of us were surprised that she got off clean on that when, I mean... 
just tell you my opinion. I think that when I was in the army, if I had a, a private email server in my basement and I was had classified information going through there, uh, I'm pretty sure I would be in Leavenworth for 35 years at least. Well, you, you kind of answered your own question. Yeah. All right, because especially when I was on the foreign counterintelligence side, and she's been around the block quite a few times, all right? She was a uh, senator. She was... Um, in, involved with government, she knows what secret, top secret, classified information is. We're all apprised of that when you go in. The first day you sit down, you're told about all these different categories, and her in the State Department. She knew exactly what's what, and it's quite obvious. Again, I'm only going by what the reports are. She set that server up because she didn't want her information to get out there. She didn't want FOIA requests. Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, they even said that they found emails from the President Obama going on, on that server when they did get whatever the emails they did get. That's a problem, all right? So she knew she was not supposed Isn't to do that. Isn't that considered privileged information, like right off the bat? Sure. Kind of we shouldn't even know that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, I think, what Comey did. I think he felt she was going to be president, and he didn't want to go after her. But I have never seen anything like this before in my life, okay? As I said before, the FBI investigates, DOJ prosecutes. Okay, for um, Lynch to go to Comey and say, well, you make this, the announcement and decision. This was controlled by the Department of Justice. There's no way Hillary Clinton should have had a, a server wherever and have classified information. I said, when I was on the foreign counterintelligence side, if I did that or sent emails, uh, we have the, what's called stew phones that are scrambled. Uh, you have um, internal communications, um, internet, intranet, and everything else. What she, would, what she did, from what I understand from, the, from all the reporting, she had phones, iPads, and the server, and they're all connected. When she walked into, uh, into a Russian embassy or talked to anybody, I guarantee you they got everything that's on her phone. They got everything that was on her iPad because they were not, um, they were not um, what do they call it? They weren't. Coded. Yeah. They weren't, you know, weren't coded. And whatever, they can get that information just by walking into a building. And that's the scary part. So God knows what information they really got. And that server and was not protected. No. Anyone could have gotten into it. They did. And they gave the guy who ran it, the IT guy, got immunity. Yeah, but that's the crazy thing about it. Uh, when you see, to do a regular case, you don't grant immunity all across the board. Uh, I mean, you grant immunity in exchange for testimony, exactly. right? There's, there's like exactly. a deal there. That's how it works. Yeah. You're coughing up everything. We'll give you immu immunity. Um, they destroyed the, the server. They destroyed phones, took SIM cards out when they were subpoenaed. I, that's illegal as hell. Yeah, it's obstruction of justice right there, okay? And then you look at, you know, when Comey said well, she, he definitely had classified and secret information on, on the emails, each one is a violation, you know? It's, a, it's Title 18, I think, Section 739. And whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, yeah, yeah. the consequences are there. <laughs> and I really felt that... Again, analyzing this, I think he felt she was going to be president. He didn't want to, he would have been fired or who knows? I mean, it would have been a constitutional crisis. You have somebody elected and you're going to charge her with felonies. And, and when we talk about the undermining of institutions, I mean, President Trump is a part of that. He has undermined institutions for sure. But also when we see things like this, where the director of the FBI is just essentially blessing off on crimes and not prosecuting, in this case, Hillary Clinton... I mean, that's an undermining of the institution in our system of laws. Look, it has to be the same, equal justice under the law for everybody. And they knew what they have. Again, I, I never looked at this stuff. I don't know personally. I'm just going by all the reports. Based on when he gave that, that 
statement that no reasonable prosecutor would prosecute her, my gosh, I can't tell you the uproar. There was no precedent. Yeah. He said no ridiculous. precedent. There was no intent. The intent is not part of the, the statute. You can read the statute. It's <laughs> yeah, not a part. Yeah. It doesn't say if you intend on doing it, you do it on purpose. You know, it says any transmission of any communication. If you leave a briefcase full of classified documents uh, downstairs in Grand, Grand Central Station, you're responsible for that. Absolutely. You know, and it's and you you know they had that one fellow that was on a, a nuclear submarine. He took a picture of his workstation. This is where I work. He he was in jail, you know, and he got prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And he I, I think he was sentenced to six or nine years. I think Trump commuted the, the, the sentence. He got him out because it, it was just he just took a picture and they went after him. So you look what she did. He was he was a this, dumbass, not a criminal. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and then you look what she did. You know, she knew what the rules are. Why would you do that? Obviously, because you didn't want the FOIA information to get out. Well, that's intent there. Yes. So, you know, you don't do that. And God knows how much classified information and secret information got out to, uh, to our adversaries. They haven't even addressed that at all. Correct. You know, so that's the scary part. So, you know, hopefully they'll get to the bottom of it, you know, and uh, maybe... I don't know if they're going to charge her later on or whatever, but the right thing was not I done. And so. I don't think, you know, don't she's so. the golden child there or whatever. Yeah. You know, nothing will happen. But it should be noted that, you know, she did do this stuff and she, was, she should have been prosecuted. But I, I think uh, one of my friends who knows Comey, they said he, he was like on a fence trying to do a tightrope act, you know. Trying to play both sides. And he couldn't do it. And what he did, he made the wrong decision. But maybe in his mind, he made the right decision. He, I mean, I'm sure he was in a tough position. Sure. I mean, I'll say absolutely. that, you know, but. I wouldn't want to be there. <laughs> you know, and I would have said to Loretta Lynch, you're the prosecutor. You say it. I'm not, I'm just the investigator. We're the investigative agency. We don't make prosecutive uh, decisions. You do. And I would have had the Department of Justice do it. It's not his, in his realm to do that. I don't know if his ego, why he did that, but it was not the right thing. That to he do. had a responsibility to protect the integrity of the bureau in that case. Exactly, because if he would, if would have gone back to the Department of Justice, but they all know that they're political appointees <laughs> of the Department of Justice, you know. So who knows how that would have gone? But there's no way he should have given that statement at all, and that's Jeez. and that was, and it really hurt the FBI. And you know, I, I tell you, I've known so many guys in the FBI. You go to we go to golf outings for fundraisers and things like that, and you talk to these people. These these people gave their lives, you know, their whole lives to dedicate to law enforcement to do the right thing and investigate the right way and make sure the right thing is done and when you see something like this you know where's the equal justice under the law you know and you got to do the right thing if and if you don't why are you there and that's that's the problem that a lot of people have and i I guarantee you a lot of current uh agents and support people and a lot of retired agents are very upset at this whole transformation of what's going on and to destroy the fbi's reputation really bothers a lot of us because we work so hard to do the right thing this has been an awesome discussion. Uh, before we wrap up, I'm going to have to text uh, CJ Ramon for sure and, yeah. and thank him for getting us in touch with you. Well, I really appreciate it. I, it's yeah. been an honor to come here and talk to you folks. And, uh, you know, I've had a, a varied experience and uh, it's, it's very nice guys. And it's a real pleasure to sit down here and talking with yeah, you. Yeah, thanks for coming in. This has really been amazing. Thank you so All much. Right. Yeah, so before we wrap up, I always like to let you guys know what we have going on here. Uh, be sure to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men, by men, of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. We have the Dash One crate, the Pro crate, and for those looking for the holy grail of gear subscriptions, our premium crate. These are all available at CrateClub.us, and right now we're running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all Software Radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live. So get on that right now. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SOFREP. 
for 20% off any Gearbox. Sign up today. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and a whole lot more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at thenewsrep.com, you've got to get on board. Expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here, like Jack Murphy and the many guest writers who pop up on there as well. Unlimited access to NewsRep on any device. Unlimited access to the app. Join the War Room community. Invitations to our exclusive events. And it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $1.99. Sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. By the way, for those not in the know, we have our own SoftRep radio app that you can download for free on iPhone or Android. And our homepage, as always, softrepradio.com, where you can see our full archive of shows. Keep up with us at SoftRep Radio. I'm going to get uh, the video up of Ken on our Instagram so you can see all that cool stuff. And I always post those highlight videos. Uh, but this has been great. I, I usually end the show with, you know, what do you want to plug? But I don't think you have anything that you're plugging. No, I, no nothing to plug at all. I just, you know, doing my thing is asset forfeiture and have a lovely wife, C.J. Ramon's sister. And, uh, <laughs> I have a great life going right now. So one day I'll retire, but I still really enjoy what I'm doing. Um, I think I'm still do- doing some positive things for our country. And, um, you know, asset forfeiture, actually, I don't know if I really explain it. It's taking, it started off with organized crime and that they would go to jail, but they still have all their assets when it came back out. But now it turned into the white collar crime side, too. And they, these guys, it's billions of dollars. So, you know, we're getting victims back money that they, they had stolen from them. Oh, exactly. Wow. So they get, they put in for it and they get money back, you know, not made whole a lot of times, but they get a lot of money back from uh, as being victims. So we, yeah. that's why we look at houses, cars, bank accounts, and we take that and, you know, it really helps out society. So it's, it's been good. I got another few years to go yet with that. So it's been good. <laughs> it's, it's important work and I appreciate you coming in. It's funny. I just watched a video <clears throat> or was a clip that, uh, one of our regulars, uh, Navy SEAL Eric Davis posted on Instagram uh, from like a lecture that he gave. And he was talking about how all the free information that you get out there, it's it's like an advertisement for something and someone is selling you something. So he's like, you, you know, you have to buy good information because that's what you're going to get. The reason I bring this up is because I, it's not always true, not to uh, bash on what he said at all. But every now and again, we get a guy on like you who is not pushing a book you don't have social media. <laughs> You're just here because you want to get your story out there. And it's it's cool because it's unbiased information. I mean, it's biased from your own perspective. But, you know, right. you just want the information out there for people to hear. And you're really not trying to sell anything. And, and right. I really appreciate it when guys like you make the effort to come in just because you want that information out there for the public. And, and it, it's been a great you know, almost two hours here. Yeah, it's amazing. It went by so fast. You know, as I said, I, I really thank CJ for hooking me up with you guys. And, uh, you know, it's been a real pleasure. And, it, you know, it just we try to do a lot of good still even to this day. And there, there are a lot of people out there because, you know, we look at social media, how bad things are every day. And you look at the news, how horrible. But there are people that are fighting the battles, you know, doing the right thing. So, 
I'm going to continue and then keep on going. Maybe I will write that book. Yeah, you know, I hope you do. I hope you do. It'll be interesting. <laughs> thank you again so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.